Hello, We The People listeners. It's time for another edition of Ask Jeff. And has there ever been a better time? Send me your questions about the Constitution, and I'll do my best to answer them in a future episode. Go to bit.ly forward slash askjeffpodcast to submit your questions. That's bit.ly forward slash askjeffpodcast. You can also tweet them using the hashtag askjeffncc. Submissions close on February 19th. Thanks so much for sending your questions. It's an amazing time to educate ourselves about the Constitution, and I look forward to hearing from you. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week we tackle the hottest constitutional news of the day, President Trump's nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to replace Justice Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court. Joining me to discuss the prospects for his confirmation and how he would reshape the Supreme Court and to have a great deep dive into his judicial philosophy are two good friends of We the People and two of America's leading constitutional advocates who are on the front lines of the confirmation debate. Uh, John Malcolm is director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and the Ed Gilbertson and Sherry Lindbergh Gilbertson Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Michelle Juando is vice president for legal progress at the Center for American Progress. John, Michelle, thank you so much for joining and welcome back. Good to be with you. It's so great to be back. Thrilled to have the dream team back. Before we start, <laughs> I should say that I... Uh, have the honor of knowing Judge Gorsuch. I clerked with him on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit uh, many years ago and uh, wrote a piece about him recently for The Atlantic called A Jeffersonian for the Supreme Court. We the people listeners who want to check out what I think can check out the piece. But of course, as we the people moderator, I have no constitutional views whatsoever <laughs> and will simply in the neutralist and most bipartisan fashion ask each of you your thoughts. So let's jump right in. John, you got an impressive shout out from President Trump when in nominating Judge Gorsuch, he called out the Heritage Foundation for its advice in the nomination process. Uh, and yet Judge Gorsuch was not on your original list of, of 10 recommended nominees. Tell us what your role was in choosing Judge Gorsuch and how you were part of this exciting process. Sure. Well, it all began shortly after Justice Scalia died last February. Then uh, a candidate, Donald Trump, who was you know, vying for the Republican nomination, was in Washington, D.C. He was in a large room of people. And my, my boss, Senator Jim, Jim DeMint, was there. And he turned to Jim DeMint and he said, well, the Heritage Foundation helped me put together a list of potential Supreme Court justices. Senator DeMint said yes. And Donald Trump promptly went on television and said that the Heritage Foundation would be helping him. Once Senator DeMint came back, I was tasked with putting together that list. I only had eight names on my list. It was very, very, very short list meant to be representative of the kinds of people we would put on the court. But rather than furnishing it directly to the Trump campaign, uh, it was actually published in a blog last March 30th. So it was actually as available to Bernie Sanders as it was to Donald Trump. Six of the eight names on my list ended up making it onto the, the final Trump list. And President was Trump was kind to uh, you know give credit to the Heritage Foundation to help him uh, come up with the list and, and inform his thinking. I purposely kept my list very, very short to eight names. Frankly, if I had added two more names that I probably should have, the two names I would have put on were Neil Gorsuch and Raymond Kethledge. So the fact that he was not on my list is in no way, shape or form 
uh, a knock on Neil Gorsuch or a reflection of my, uh, you know, I have a high regard for him, not a low regard. Uh, thank you very much for that. Well, Michelle, we'll, we'll delve into his particular judicial philosophy, but what's your basic uh, take on Judge Gorsuch? Uh, is he within the mainstream of conservative legal thought, and, and should he be confirmed? Well, I think it's really important to begin this conversation kind of putting in the context of this moment. Um, in the first two weeks of President Trump's administration, what we've continued to see is an, an alarming disregard for the court's um, constitutional limits on power. Uh, there's been been a, a memo that would potentially authorize torture, Muslims and refugees being banned from this country. We had an attorney general who was fired, and the questioning of the legitimacy of a federal judge who struck down his Muslim ban. And so what we see is that this administration um, seems to be pushing through an agenda that is quite troubling. Um, we see that manifested with some of his cabinet nominees. And now we are at a moment where we have a Supreme Court nominee. And I think a question that many people are asking is, what is the independence of this nominee? And can we have someone who will act as a final check on the president. Um, I think it's very clear that we need an independent branch of government to check this administration um, and to make sure that that branch reflects the values of all Americans and not some. And so I think the concern particularly about this justice, and you've seen it in many statements um, from those like Senator Schumer and the former chair of the judiciary, Senator Leahy, is that there seems to be an, an adherence to a conservative ideology um, that would run contrary to being an independent check on this administration. And I think that's where you get into uh, issues about whether or not this is the type of nominee that at this moment in history should actually sit on the Supreme Court. Thanks for that. Well, John, let's just jump into Michelle's broad uh, challenge, which I think Senate Democrats will certainly raise a lot. Do you believe, based on his record, that Judge Gorsuch would, in fact, check the president if he believed that the president had exceeded constitutional restraints and, and why? Sure. Well, let me begin by saying that I obviously disagree with a lot of the characterizations that Michelle just said, I, with one notable exception. I, you know, I agree that uh, you know, the, the Judge Robart out in, in, in Washington state is not a so-called judge. He is a legitimate Article III judge. And I, and I don't think it helps the public debate uh, to question the legitimacy of a sitting judge any more than I think it helps the public debate to question the legitimacy of President Trump uh, as, uh, as president. Uh, and so if Michelle's concern uh, is that she is looking for a judge who, if elevated to the Supreme Court, uh, will act independently uh, in terms of not just supporting the policy preferences of the president who nominated him, uh, but will look at the text and structure of the Constitution and the text of laws uh, and act as an independent bulwark to protect our liberties, uh, I think that she should uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, I think that Judge Gorsuch, over the course of his career, a distinguished career on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, has spoken eloquently and, and thought deeply about separation uh, of powers. He clearly cares about the text and structure of the Constitution, has an originalist uh, approach. He clearly cares about the text of, uh, 
uh, of statutes. He has clearly ruled in cases, reaching results that he probably personally did not like, but that he felt were was the right result to reach uh, under the law. Uh, and so if you are looking for somebody who is going to truly act as an appropriate check uh, within our constitutional framework as a third branch of government, uh, I think that Judge Gorsuch is uh, right in line with the kind of justice that people ought to uh, be proud to have. Well, Michelle, what about that counter? Uh, John says that there are plenty of cases where Judge Gorsuch has reached results uh, that clash with his political conclusions, uh, ranging from Fourth Amendment uh, restraints on the police. Uh, Judge Gorsuch's dis- defenders have even cited the gutierrez Brazella decision uh, where he seemed to criticize a doctrine known as Chevron deference, which requires courts to defer to administrative agencies. But in fact, that that case involved uh, the deportation of an immigrant uh, and and suggested a willingness to um, uh, rule in a constitutional fashion in those kind of cases, too. So so what's your response to those cases? So I, I think a few things, you know, as first off, I would like to begin that John and I agreed on something. So <laughs> so we both agree that the attack on Judge Robart was was inappropriate. I always think it's good to find some areas of agreement um, with your colleagues in this space. But uh, but going back to the issue at hand, you know, the appropriate measure for any Supreme Court justice is whether they would faithfully apply the history and the whole text of the Constitution. Um, And one of the areas that I think in particular that we've seen a kind of troubling adherence that followed some of the litmus tests that this president has put forth has been in the area of reproductive rights. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into a a conversation about uh, Chevron deference, and in particular we can talk about the Gutierrez case. Um, But there seems to be uh, a willingness on Judge Gorsuch's side to limit women's access to a constitutional right. Um, and that suggests that he is making good on a promise that this president put forth. You know, President Trump said that any justice that he puts forth before the Supreme Court would be ready to overturn Roe versus Wade. And when you look at the history of some of Judge Gorsuch's statements um, or opinions, um, you see this kind of troubling hostility. I think even if you go back to Hobby Lobby. And yes, the Supreme Court later uh, affirmed that decision. But at the time, one of the dissenting judges in the Hobby Lobby decision noted that it was unprecedented at the time. And and for listeners who may not be as familiar, that case essentially said that corporations not only are people, but that closely held corporations have religious beliefs, and those beliefs fall under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and that therefore would allow corporations to impose their religious views on workers. Now, again, the Supreme Court later affirmed that right, but at the time, that was unprecedented, and it falls in line with a so-called litmus test that President Trump put forth for his nominees. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of concern from various areas um, and voices in the kind of progressive uh, community. Thanks very much for that. Okay, John, Michelle has put on the table two big uh, areas of the religious rights of corporations and also Roe v. Wade. Uh, Judge Gorsuch hasn't written a lot about reproductive health. He, He did write a dissent in 2016, arguing the governor of Utah could suspend state funding for Planned Parenthood. 
But based on your analysis of his record, do you think Judge Gorsuch would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, I don't know whether he would or not. I, I find it passing strange only because, as you just noted, he hasn't written uh, anything on, uh, on abortion. He, he wrote a book that talked about assisted suicide and euthanasia. And so, you know, that, that might uh, give you some insight into his thinking on life issues. But he made very clear in that book uh, that he was not talking about abortion, which involves the issue about whether a fetus is, in fact, a human life. Uh, in the Planned Parenthood case that you talked about, he didn't talk about the merits or demerits about what Planned Parenthood did or didn't do. Uh, that was in the context of whether or not the governor uh, had acted properly after these you know, horrific videotapes came out uh, involving Planned Parenthood uh, you know, selling, uh, selling baby parts. I know that Michelle would not agree with that characterization <laughs> not about <at> all. <laughs> whether he was entitled to, you know, to cut off state Medicaid funding. And a judge had, uh, you know, had, had said that no, Planned Parenthood was not entitled to uh, a temporary restraining order, actually a preliminary injunction. And really all Judge Gorsuch took issue with was whether or not the reviewing court had used the proper standards to evaluate whether or not you know, the, the, the Planned Parenthood was entitled to get injunctive relief. Uh, you know, the Hobby Lobby case, that's a case that goes to the heart of religious freedom and whether or not a closely held, family held uh, company uh, can act in accordance with its deeply held religious beliefs pursuant to a federal statute that's designed to, to give them exactly that right, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So I don't know how Judge Gorsuch would rule uh, on Roe versus Wade. He hasn't written on the subject. I would note that in terms of changing the course of the court's direction, that even if he were a vote against overturning Roe versus Wade, that still wouldn't change the Supreme Court's jurisprudence because all we would be doing is returning to the status quo ante that existed before Justice Scalia died, and his views were well known with respect to Roe versus Wade. Thanks for that. Uh, Michelle, uh, John mentioned Judge Gorsuch's book about assisted suicide and euthanasia. We the People listeners, please read the book. It's, you can get it on Kindle fast. It's short. It's very well written, and it will give you a very clear insight into Judge Gorsuch's thinking about at least the moral dimensions of what he calls the intrinsic obligation to protect human life in all circumstances. Um, Michelle, do you think that Judge Gorsuch's insistence that the right to life might have constitutional dimensions in the assisted suicide context could have implications for his views about Roe, and what would they be? I, you know, if we look at these um, <clears throat> both actions, uh, whether it's the book or his his role in the Hobby Lobby decision in 2013, um, and even kind of looking at the Planned Parenthood case, um, what we see and what we continue to see is that there is this adherence to this ideology around reproductive, a constitutionally protected right to reproductive access in this country. And while I recognize that there are some who will take issue with kind of our characterization, um, in the Planned Parenthood case, for instance, it it made a difference that Judge Gorsuch tried to invoke a process uh, that was that some would say was very minor, right? Looking at whether or not um, the entire circuit would hear the case on banc. But it matters because it's hard to think of another good legal reasons why he would do so. En banc hearings simply are not used for those kind of cases. But it does make sense if he continues to have um, a posture, a hostility 
hostility towards um, a provider who would want to cut off funds to a health care provider that performed abortion. Um, and what I what I will say is if you kind of take it even out of that space, but if you continue to look at his ruling it's around workers' rights, and there are several really strong dissents um, about what agencies are doing and whether or not they're interpreting federal laws. And there's a pattern that continues to come from his writings. And there's this hostility to around areas of choice, around workers' rights. And even today, you saw an AP article that this kind of ideology would hew with what some are saying is very much the kind of pro-business, pro-employer posture of the Roberts Court. And again, yes, you are talking about someone replacing Justice Scalia, and we recognize that that doesn't change the quote-unquote makeup of the court. But every time you have a Supreme Court justice, whoever they are, again, their responsibility is to faithfully apply the whole history and the whole text of the Constitution and to represent everyone's interests, we the people, and not particular segments. And I think if you have a justice who has already made up their mind before they get any case, that's troubling for the American people. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, so, John, as you said, the book about euthanasia might uh, contain implications about Roe. Understand, we can't know for sure, but just based on your reading of it as a scholar, does Judge Gorsuch's recognition that the right to life might have constitutional protection that would require laws infringing on it to be subject to heightened legal scrutiny could that suggest a willingness uh, to overturn Roe? Sure, it could. You know, I mean, Roe versus <laughs> Wade is highly controversial. Lots and lots of liberal uh, legal scholars think that it was poorly reasoned. They think that there may be a constitutional right to abortion for other reasons other than what was contained in Roe and its progeny. Uh, but, you know, look, Roe versus Wade is a highly controversial decision. I would disagree with Michelle's characterization of the Planned Parenthood case. That had to do with the standards about how you review uh, the grant or denial of a preliminary injunction and whether or not Planned Parenthood as a, a seemingly favored party of the left was, entire to, was entitled to have a relaxed standard uh, of review. Judge Gorsuch felt uh, that it was not. With respect to uh, business implications, you know, I, I would disagree there too. He has very nuanced views. He's ruled in favor of employers in some cases, in favor of employees in some cases, in favor of unions in some cases, against unions uh, in some cases, and certainly in terms of the deference that uh, executive branch agencies are due, which has a big impact on uh, on, uh, on, on businesses, indeed many, many facets of society. He believes that it should be judges who should be deciding the best interpretation of statutes, and that shouldn't be left to executive branch agencies that can stick their finger in the wind and change their views uh, from one moment to the next, and certainly one administration uh, to the next. And I think that's an important protecting, liberty-protecting interest for all of us. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Michelle, much of uh, these questions from the uh, religious interest of corporations to willingness to overturn Roe will depend on Judge Gorsuch's willingness to strike down laws passed by state and federal legislatures or his willingness to be more judicially engaged, I think is the, the, the current phrase. Do you have a sense from his record whether he is, uh, like Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes and Robert Jackson, a, a champion of judicial deference, or like uh, Justices uh, Hugo Black and Clarence Thomas, a, a champion of judicial engagement? Well, I, I think I will probably give the very uh, 
lawyer answer here. It depends on kind of what position uh, you see the judge seeking to to put forth. Um, so let me give you another example. So in the Luke P case, um, this was a case around IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And in that case, uh, Judge Gorsuch held that a student with autism didn't have the right under the federal IDEA law to an education that would provide a chance for intellectual and social skills outside of the classroom. This in spite of the fact that Congress made clear in its statute that preparing students to lead productive and independent adult lives to the maximum extent possible, and that's quoting from the statute, is the major goal of IDEA. And so I think the concern there is in that case, you had a family that took took their issues with IDA to the district, one repeatedly, one in administrative proceedings, one in the federal district court, and then Judge Gorsuch reversed the district court, holding only that IDA required a basic floor of opportunity and nothing more. Um, And so in that situation, and I think there are other examples that we can look at, there is, a again, an idea that there are certain opinions and beliefs that we want to put forth. There are certain kind of ideas. And in this case, around the rights of disabled students, you see uh, a change from what Congress clearly intended. And so I think that there is a concern that depending on what the issue is, depending on what posture he would like to put forth, you'll see a difference. So again, I guess to respond to your question, the answer is maybe. Okay, John, a response to that uh, challenge, both on the IDE case and elsewhere. Do you think that Judge Gorsuch uh, does shift his views based on his politics, or is he should we take him seriously when he says that the job of a judge is to separate his political from his constitutional conclusions? Yes, I take him, I take him incredibly seriously at that. Again, he's reached lots of results and lots of opinions that would run counterfactual, if you will, to what would be expected if you were looking for somebody to just issue a political decision in line with their personal uh, preferences. I mean, I, you know, I, I note, and, and I'm, let me give you a slight a quote here. Okay, in fact, a couple of them. So Judge Gorsuch wrote that its legislators may appeal to their own moral convictions and to claims about social utility to reshape the law as they think it should be in the future. But judges should instead strive, if humanly, so, if, if humanly and so imperfectly, to apply the law as it is, focusing backward, not forward, and to look into text, structure, and history to decide what a reasonable reader at the time of the events in question would have understood the law to be, not to decide cases based on their own moral convictions or the policy consequences they believe might serve society best. And when he was at his uh, his coming out, if you will, the other day with uh, President Trump, he quoted Justice Scalia in terms of saying, if you are going to be a good and faithful judge, you have to resign yourself to the fact that you're not always going to like the conclusions you reach. If you like them all the time, you're probably doing something wrong. Justice Scalia exhibited that over the course of his career, ruling, for instance, in favor of protecting the First Amendment rights of flag burners, ruling in favor of criminal uh, defendants all the time, despite describing himself as a law enforcement individual, a law and order individual. And Judge Gorsuch has done the same in terms of his career on the bench. Okay, Michelle, one, one more beat on this. Judge Gorsuch did say, as, as John suggests, at his uh, White House announcement, he said a judge who likes every outcome he reaches is very likely a bad judge. So assuming that he's uh, being earnest uh, when he says this and we should take him at face value, uh, John also says that Justice Scalia uh, sometimes reached decisions he disagreed with involving flag burning on the Fourth Amendment. 
are there cases such as perhaps the Fourth Amendment or the scope of uh, congressional power where you believe that Judge Gorsuch has reached results that he disagrees with or not? You know, I will say this. Um, as, as we continue to kind of go through what will, of course, be a very rigorous examination of the record, I'm sure both of our sides, quote unquote, can come up with um, examples from the judge's record. But I will say this, when you put this nominee and you put his record in the midst of where we are with who this president is and what he has laid forth as his litmus test for putting forth anyone on the Supreme Court, there has to be somewhat of a grain of salt, so to speak, with what positions this judge says when he gets before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I agree that there are positions that he potentially has taken in the past, that he's reached a different decision. But when you look at the adherence, the strict adherence in some ways to this record of kind of ideologies that, again, center certain segments of the society over others, that is troubling. And that is a record that I think a number of Democrats on the Senate side, as well as Republicans, are going to question and going to look at. I think kind of going back to an earlier uh, uh, opinion that we we started to discuss is the Gutierrez case. And now in that case, Judge Gorsuch argued that a very common sense rule, that one that federal agencies had relied on for decades, which allowed agency, in his opinion, would allow agencies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power. And that in writing in both the majority opinion and the concurring opinion, that that, that was what made many say is completely out of line and is completely out of what a common sense interpretation of what Chevron has been for years. And so again, I think when you think about um, kind of his record on a number of issues, I would also say that maybe he wasn't on the initial list, but in his, in this, when this opinion came out, you saw Judge Gorsuch made it on uh, the second version of Donald Trump's list. And many said that this was a nod to say, listen, I am your guy. And so I think that there are some real concerns that uh, Democrats will continue to raise as they should, and that is their responsibility and role. I will also flag that there are many people who say that we should, you know, do away with the filibuster. And, you know, I spent many years on the Senate side and worked on a number of confirmations for Supreme Court nominees and both President Obama's nominees, both Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, were able to reach the threshold above 60 votes, a bipartisan vote um, for both of them. And so I think it's really important that as we're moving forward, we continue to keep that in mind, that whoever is put forth should be able to articulate um, a vision of what they see their role is on the court and be able to get bipartisan support. Okay, John, uh, Michelle has flagged once again the Gutierrez case. Sure. Um, in, in Gutierrez, uh, listeners, uh, which you can check out online, uh, Judge Gorsuch wrote a concurrence emphasizing the growth of the regulatory state and arguing that Supreme Court cases like the Chevron case, which say that courts should generally defer to reasonable 
uh, interpretations of federal law by administrative agencies might be uh, reconsidered because they've permitted executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power. And Judge Gorsuch wrote dramatic, dramatically, maybe the time has come to face the behemoth. Uh, John, do you, is it uh, plausible to conclude that Judge Gorsuch m- might be more likely than the Hamiltonian Justice Scalia to reconsider the scope of the regulatory state and in a Jeffersonian spirit to strike some of it down? Well, let me, I'll answer that question in just a moment. I just wanted to briefly address one thing, which is there's no question that Judge Gorsuch has reached results uh, in cases that he did not uh, like. I'll give you an example. It's a 2016 case, U.S. versus Ackerman, in which America Online, through utilizing hashtag technology, uh, intercepted an email that they suspected someone was sending containing child pornography. And they sent it to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children opened up the email, discovered that there were five images of child pornography, and the guy was prosecuted and convicted uh, of uh, transporting child pornography. Judge Gorsuch, in an opinion, held that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children was acting at the behest of a government agency and that the Fourth Amendment's restrictions against unreasonable searches and seizures would apply to NCMEC. Now, if you think that Judge Gorsuch on an individual liked reaching a result that could quite possibly set free a child pornographer, then I think you know you ought to re-examine uh, your views on that. With respect to uh, Judge Gorsuch's opinion in Gutierrez-Brizuela, so yes, he has said that he thinks that uh, he cares, as I said, deeply about separation of powers, and he believes that Congress has violated what's known as the non-delegation doctrine by deferring too much lawmaking authority uh, to legislative, uh, to executive branch agencies. But with respect to Chevron, more importantly, he believes that it is an abdication of the judicial duty, and here's why. So what Chevron says is if Congress passes an ambiguous law, a court finds it to be ambiguous, a court is supposed to defer to any reasonable interpretation of that ambiguous statute by an executive branch agency. What Judge Gorsuch says is, no, that's not what judges are supposed to do under separation of powers and under Article 3. They're not supposed to defer to an agency to come up with any reasonable interpretation. They're supposed to look at ambiguous statute and come up with the best interpretation of that statute. That's what judges do. He has, by the way, applied that same thinking in an area where where, uh, fair warning and due process are critically important, and that is in the area he's made it quite clear that he thinks that there should be no Chevron deference whatsoever when it comes to interpreting criminal statutes. So yes, I think this is bold thinking. I think that it is originalist thinking. I think it goes along with separation of powers, and I think it will have an influence uh, on the court, uh, will cause some of his uh, uh, fellow justices, once he is on the court, and I think he will be on the court, uh, to perhaps rethink their views in this matter. Interesting. Michelle, uh, jumping off of that, how might America look differently if Judge Gorsuch persuades some of his fellow justices to take a harder look at the administrative state. Uh, During the Obama administration, judges, uh, liberals wanted judges to defer to progressive regulations. But could there be cases where uh, a court with Gorsuch on it gave a skeptical look to regulations or attempted deregulations passed by President Trump? You know, I think it is important that we also recognize that we are talking about 
giving unelected judges more power to strike down federal regulations. And that is essentially what this conversation boils down to. And even Justice Scalia, who is a hero of Judge Gorsuch, warned of the impact of limiting or overruling the doctrine and that it could be quite severe. And while I think Scalia likely would have reached a very different conclusion than the liberal justice when he applied Chevron, but he didn't argue that court should not defer to agencies. And I think some have looked at Scalia's textualist approach, and that realistically influenced his Chevron analysis. And so he may have been quicker to conclude that the meaning of statutes were clear and unambiguous. And, and so so to the extent that we're, we're, we are thinking about um, what this means in practice, that there are some who, including someone who Judge Gorsuch greatly admires, who felt that this would be moving the country in the wrong direction and warned about its impact. Um, You know, listen, I think as a former clerk of Justice Kennedy, that he and someone who is quite amiable, um, very charming, um, and those are all things, quite frankly, that we need on the Supreme Court. We need the open-mindedness. We need to kind of go back to the days and kind of dial down some of the rhetoric. So I think it would be um, very likely that he would be able to uh, talk to his colleagues. But when it comes to what this would mean in, in terms of moving forward or or changing what has been um, common sense understanding of a rule that, again, we're talking about precedent that has been in case for decades, that would be somewhat of an activist or uh, an engaging position that would change precedent as we know it. John, what about Michelle's interesting suggestion that Judge Gorsuch, because of his amiable personality and because Judge Justice Kennedy trusts him, might be able to bring Justice Kennedy over to the conservative side in, in cases where he's kind of in the middle? Can you describe in a number of areas cases where that might uh, materialize? Sure. Just stepping back for just a moment to some of Michelle's comments about Chevron, I, I find it a little bit strange that she's saying that unelect- you know, unelected uh, judges are going to be making uh, these decisions. I would note that these are appointed and confirmed judges, uh, but she would rather defer to people who are unelected, unconfirmed, unrepresentative uh, uh, bureaucrats. Uh, and in terms of providing fair notice to people about what these regulations actually might mean, uh, bureaucrats who could change their mind uh, from one day to the next, so long as what they do stays within the broad parameters of a reasonable interpretation of uh, of an ambiguous statute. Look, Judge Gorsuch is uh, a, a charming a man, uh, you know, with <laughs> you, you could tell that from uh, the brief remarks that he made the other day. There are many speeches you can you, you can watch that he has given on YouTube. Uh, he's clearly uh, very erudite, respectful, uh, and I think he would be will get along with his colleagues on the Supreme Court. I'm sure that they all were influence uh, each other at one time or another, both with the force of their personality, but more important through the power of, of their reasoning and their opinions. Uh, and you know, I, I don't know whether he'll impact Justice Kennedy because of their relationship any more than any of the other justices. They certainly enjoy a close relationship. Justice Kennedy swore Judge Gorsuch uh, in when he became a Tenth Circuit uh, judge. Uh, And certainly from my perspective, to the extent to which you view Justice Kennedy as a swing vote, I hope he does have that kind of influence on Justice Kennedy. Um, Michelle, can you give us specific examples, uh, cases where Justice Kennedy is kind of on the fence? I can think of affirmative action where he had been skeptical but seemed to be moving uh, onto the more progressive side uh, recently. 
uh, perhaps also cases involving immigration where he'd been deferential to the president but might shift. What, what's your nightmare scenario, as it were, if Judge, <laughs> if Judge Gorsuch were really effective in winning over Justice Kennedy? And then just to complete the nightmare, the progressive nightmare scenario, <laughs> some have suggested that Justice Kennedy might be so impressed with President Trump's suggest, uh, nomination of Ju- Judge Gorsuch that he'd be more likely to retire uh, because he'd have confidence in, in President Trump's ability to pick his successor. Uh, what do you think of that theory? Well, well, we have definitely been considering these various um, combinations of nightmares um, as you as you presented. Um, you, you know, I think one of the other areas, quite frankly, that there's some concern is in the area of um, equality for LGBTQ individuals. You know, one of the things that President Trump demanded um, is that he would also put forth a justice who would overtone Obergefell and in sure that marriage equality, quote unquote, goes to the states instead of the federal courts. And so I think that there there are questions um, around kind of his ability to um, use his personal relationship or otherwise to kind of affect that as an area where we've seen kind of a great expansion of the jurisprudence over the last eight years. And, and to imagine a retraction of that um, would be you know, I, I, I'll say horrific um, and would definitely be moving the country in a very different direction. Um, you know, a, as we continue to kind of think about this moment, I think it's really important to also recognize that um, Merrick Garland was considered one of the most experienced, uh, ch- charming, kind. He was not necessarily the support of the progressive left, but was considered mainstream. There were issues, particularly around um, jurisprudence in in the criminal justice space that many raise as concerns, but he was put forth as a nominee, as a consensus nominee. And I think one of the reasons the president recognized at the time that that was necessary is to kind of change the tenor of how decisions um, are made, to change the conversation on Capitol Hill. And we and there were some who didn't have the decency to have a meeting with Judge Garland, who and he didn't even receive a hearing. And so as we kind of put this in context, yes, I think Judge Gorsuch is a very kind and uh, charming and affable individual, but so was Judge Garland. And he didn't even get the respect and the decency of meetings with uh, members on Capitol Hill or even a hearing. And I think when we, when we put this in context of kind of how the Things have changed around judicial nominations. Judge Gorsuch walks into a Senate that is very different because of what happened over the last year. He walks into um, a confirmation fight where the bar has been raised because of the president that's nominated him and the unconstitutional actions that many believe that this president has put forth. So there are a host of real concerns as we continue over the next um, coming weeks and months over this nomination and what happens next. Thanks for that. Uh, uh, John, Michelle has raised the question of Senate politics, and we can uh, return to that in a sec. But I want to just give you a hypothetical, which may not be a hypothetical, and that is, how do you think Judge Gorsuch would rule on the uh, immigration ban case if he were to be on the court when the court heard it? Complicated case. I was just going to say, we we had a great podcast on it last week. There There are good arguments on both sides. It's a complicated case, but it it might be a good window into his thinking, if you can channel him. Yeah, I, I do want to go back to a few of the things that, that 
that Michelle said, the answer, the short answer to your question is I have less than no idea. I mean, it's still, so you had one ruling from a district court judge in Massachusetts upholding the executive order, another one granting a temporary restraining order. Temporary restraining order is not a final ruling on the merits. Uh, so I think that all needs to be fleshed out. I, I guess I would very quickly respond with three things where I disagree with Michelle. <laughs> First of all, with all due respect, Michelle, it happens that President Trump happens to like the Obergefell decision uh, and said that he considered it settled law. So he certainly is not considering it to the extent to which he has a litmus test, a litmus test on overturning the, the same-sex marriage decision. He appears to like that one. Uh, with respect to, to Chief Judge Garland, you know, I am uh, I'm not going to say anything bad about Chief Judge Garland, both as a judge and uh, as an individual. He's a fine judge and a dedicated public servant. I would note, however, that it was then judge, uh, then Senator Joe Biden, who in the last year of the presidency of George H.W. Bush said that if a vacancy occurred on the Supreme Court, that the Senate would not consider uh, a nominee from that that President Bush, and that it was uh, Senator Schumer uh, with nearly a year and a half to go uh, in the ad administration of President George W. Bush, who said that if a vacancy occurred, the Senate would not take up uh, a nominee whom George W. Bush would submit. And then with respect to the 60 vote threshold, I don't know what's going to happen, but I would point out this, which is with about two weeks to go, before this election, when the Democrats assumed that we would have President Hillary Clinton and the Democrats were expecting that they were going to retake the majority, vice presidential nominee Tim Kaine and Harry Reid made it crystal clear. They said explicitly that if President Clinton submitted a nominee to the Supreme Court and the Republicans in the minority filibustered that nominee, they would have no qualms whatsoever about extending the nuclear option that Harry Reid had exercised in November 2013. And when Chuck Schumer was asked about that, all he said was, well, let's hope it doesn't come to that. He did not take the nuclear option off the table. Okay. Um, Michelle, um, there was a recent article by... Uh, the scholars Jeremy Kidd uh, and others called Searching for Justice Scalia, Measuring the Scalianess of the Next Potential <laughs> Member of the U.S. Supreme Court, a great law review title. And the article found that just Judge Gorsuch ranked second out of 15 judges in Scalianess, surpassed only by Utah Supreme Court Justice Thomas Lee, the other names on President Trump's shortlist, including Judge Hardiman, looked much more like John Roberts or Samuel Alito when they were federal appellate judges than Justice Scalia. So this is all very empirically supported, and listeners can check it out <laughs> if you want to walk out. Uh, it's on the SSRN network. But, you, you know, how? where would you rank Judge Gorsuch on Scalianus and, and, and more specifically on a scale of 1 to 10, how afraid should liberals be? <laughs> um, you know, so so maybe I will start with um, the ranking. You know, the New York Times put out a chart recently, and actually, uh, Judge Gorsuch was to the right of Scalia. And I think uh, one of the key uh, points that they use in making that determination is his views on Chevron. So I think he, in some ways, he, he out Scalia Scalia on, um, on certain issues. Um, although I think that there are others, whether it's around Roe or um, issues around immigration that he kind of hews to um, kind of the Scalia doctrine, so to speak. Um, I think in terms of for liberals, I would say this, this is a 10. And I think anytime <laughs> you're talking about an opening on the Supreme Court, um, 
Um, we know that this is not just four years with an administration. At, at, with, uh, at 49, his relative youth, um, we're talking about potentially 30 years of, of a change of the way that we understand law in this country and constitutional law in this country. And so um, I think that it is significant, kind of this moment where we are. You know, one one point that I will say is while there are, are some who are saying, you know, let's blow up the nuclear option as someone who spent many years in the Senate, um, there are traditionalists who still believe that there is something to be said for comity and putting forth a nominee who has the kind of support from both sides. And the reason why that's so important is if we fall into kind of patterns of tribalism that we often see on the lower chamber and the House, that was never the designation of what the Senate should be. It was always decided to be the more deliberative body for a reason. It protects all of us, whether or not we agree. There are moments where different parties will be in the majority or the minority. And the reason why we have the certain rules um, and uh, that we have established is for that moment, giving ma- making sure that the minority party has rights because at different times in history, I don't like being, quote unquote, part of the minority party now, but there are reasons why uh, we do certain things. And there are at least five Republican senators who are not in favor of destroying the nuclear option. And so I would note that for your listeners. Okay, John, last substantive question and then closing arguments. On a scale of 1 to 10, how psyched should conservatives be? And uh, can you identify areas where Judge Gorsuch might differ from Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court? Well, it's hard to say because there are a number of areas in which he has not written about abortion being one of them, uh, gay rights being another, the Second Amendment, uh, but and certainly Chevron is an area in which they appear to differ. Although I would note that later in his life, uh, Justice Scalia appeared to be reconsidering his views on uh, on Chevron deference. Look, I... I you know, I don't know whether he's going to be more Scalia than Scalia or less Scalia than Scalia or the same degree of Scalia. Scalia uh, is not particularly important to me. Uh, but, you know, what is important is that he uh, has a, a, a well settled, very reasonable, in my opinion, completely correct view of the, uh, you know, the way the judges should go about their business. And I think he will be an outstanding Supreme Court justice uh, who will, uh, you know, help uh, help with the legacy of this president. Uh, thanks so much for that. Okay, it's time, Dream Team, for closing arguments. And the question is the obvious one. Michelle, should Judge Gorsuch be confirmed to the Supreme Court? And if he is confirmed, how might he transform the law for decades to come? You know, I, I, I think there are a few themes that are really important about Judge Gorsuch's record. Um, you know, we have seen, again, an adherence to put certain interests, particularly those of um, corporate and kind of employee and employer and special interests ahead of kind of the needs of working families. And at this moment in history, I think we need a justice who will be fair to everyone who comes before the Supreme Court, who hasn't made up their mind before the case comes before him. And there's a lot of polling that shows that people are concerned about the jurisprudence of this justice that would potentially threaten air, water, consumer protections, employee rights, and even more ways for uh, certain segments of the population, the corporate side, so to speak, to rig um the the system as we understand it and we must have at this moment independence in the in lieu of many of the constant unconstitutional actions of this president independence must be at 
paramount. Um, One of President Trump's advisors, Roger Stone, has said if Trump is going to be a transformational president, not a transitional president, he needs a supportive court, not a conservative court, not a right wing court, a Trump court. And I would beg to differ that the Supreme Court doesn't belong to any individual. It is the people's court. And we need courts to play their essential role of being a check on unconstitutional and unlawful actions, particularly of this administration. So with that said, you know, I think the Senate, it is up to them to do a thorough job and vetting this nominee. The Center for American Progress, my president, Neera Tandon, we have come out in opposition to this nominee. But in spite of that, I think whoever considers when you're considering a lifetime appointment on our nation's highest court, there's a threshold of at least 60 votes for confirmation. And he deserves fair and due diligence of a record that is disconcerting to many segments of our country. That's what we desire when we have these nominations. And that's what the American people deserve. Thank you so much for that. Uh, John, last word to you. Should Judge Gorsuch be confirmed and how might he transform the law for decades to come? Yes, he absolutely should be confirmed and he will be confirmed. I disagree with Michelle's characterizations of the constitutionality uh, of the of the uh, the president's actions. You can agree or disagree as to whether or not they're, they're good policy. Uh, the one thing I do agree with her about uh, emphatically is that judges should be independent. That's why we have separation of powers. That's why they are given life tenure uh, so that they can serve uh, as a check on the other branches of government when they act inappropriately, whether it is a conservative government that is in power or a liberal government that is in power. I think that Judge Gorsuch has displayed throughout his entire career, certainly on the bench, uh, that he has that kind of independence uh, and, and strength of mind and character uh, that he will serve under, no doubt, Republican presidents and Democratic presidents and go about uh, and do his job with fidelity, integrity, and, and uh, respect for the rule of law and apply it equally to all. Thank you so much, John Malcolm and Michelle Joando, for an illuminating, lively, engaged, and completely riveting discussion of the nomination of Judge Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Great to have you back uh, as often as possible. Always wonderful to have you on the podcast. Uh, John, Michelle, thank you so much for joining. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for having us. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full Panoply at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Folks, I know you're listening in greater and greater numbers because everyone wants to know about constitutional news from a balanced and trusted source. I want you to go to the Constitution Center website, sign up at any level, get our constant updates, podcasts, videos, including our wonderful new newsletter, Constitution Weekly, which will collect all of the week's constitutional news and the NCC's great nonpartisan content. So that's why you should consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. 
On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.